0: to take another 15% off of this course. And uh, we can't wait to see you there. Processes and tools dominate today's Agile discussions, but we are devoted to the individuals and interactions that make it work. From the beginner to the veteran practitioner, we have something for you. Welcome to Agile for Humans. All right, everybody, it's Ryan Ripley. We're about to start this week's episode of Agile for Humans. But before we get started, a few things I wanted to tell you about. First of all, the Patreon effort. All of you have stepped up uh, and have really shown a lot of love to the show. And right now, we've got a number of Patreon people to catch up on. I want to start with Andrew Scheingold starting out at the $25 reward level. Manuel Gomez at the $10. Amitai Schleier at the 5 We have Jack Burnham and Paul Wynia helping us out at a dollar a month. That's, that money goes right back into the show, everybody, and I really appreciate the support so far. I uh, really love the fact that people are stepping up with their hard-earned cash and saying, yes, Agile for Humans is valuable. Uh, we appreciate it. We're going to help out. Uh, totally, totally optional. Agile for Humans, is, it's always free, and it will be free from, from now until it ends, hopefully in the very, very distant future, but I uh, really love it that people are stepping up with Patreon. If you want to check it out, there's links to the Patreon site uh, on the show notes, Always love and appreciate the support. Please share the show. Uh, Show us a little love on iTunes. Five stars uh, helps out a lot, but please be honest. also want to tell you about coaching beyond the team. So Esther Derby and Don Gray are bringing their their course to uh, Columbus, Ohio. So right in the Midwest, uh, right in my backyard. Really excited about that. Uh, Right now, it's April 3rd through the 5th, uh, Columbus, Ohio. Uh, If you go to RyanRipley.com forward slash CBTT, You can check out Coaching Beyond the Team with Esther Derby and Don Gray. I will be there. You get to hang out with me. We'll do uh, a workshop together, hopefully hang out, uh, do dinner, all those things that go with attending a workshop. But I'll be there. I'm excited to be there. It's at the Ohio State uh, University Union. Beautiful venue. It's where uh, Path to Agility is every year, the COHA conference that we love and support. So, hey, let's do a workshop together. RyanRipley.com forward slash CBTT. Hope to see all of you there. All right, let's get into the show. This week's guest is John Cutler. You know, John is a huge product guy, uh, well-known for his Medium blog. He does the Hacker Noon, or he's part of the Hacker Noon. Really insightful guy, prolific writer. I really love this uh, this episode. So let's take it away. John, how are you, sir?
1: Yeah, I'm doing great. Yeah, glad to be here.
0: Yeah, you've been posting some stuff lately, John, that's getting a little bit of attention. Uh, that might be one of the things we talk about tonight. But uh, a recent post, and uh, I love the title... It was something about why Agile doesn't work. Uh, what's going on there, John? Because I, I think you, you've inadvertently started a little flame war online.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I, uh, We were talking a bit about this before we got started, but I tend to write the title at the end <laughs> of these posts, and I'm going to be completely transparent. I... I uh, I, I have a hang-up about the titles, because the smarter I try to make the title, the 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 fewer the people that are going to read the post. It, <laughs> it is literally, there's a correlation, literally. If I try to, you know, uh, do anyway, so then I got into writing posts w- with numbers in them, you know, and there was this post about feature factories and like that, and I would I would love to say I was even purposely trying to be provocative with the title, but literally it was, uh, you know, it's about 1.20 in the morning, I'm, it's quiet, I'm doing my best thinking and work, and I just had to get this out there. Uh, and the title, Why Isn't Agile Working, cam- comes directly from a, a relative of mine, actually. And this relative is a CEO of a, of a technology company that, that works in the insurance space and I, I remember a long afternoon we spent together in Dallas, Texas when I was visiting. And he started to ask a little bit what I was doing. We hadn't been in touch for a long time. And then he was talking about some uh, agile transformation in his company and just how angry and frustrated he was. And uh, it, it it actually resonated with me. And I've been thinking about it now for a couple years. years. But, but this was sort of, you know, straight what scott said you know he said why isn't this damn thing working why isn't this agile thing working what the hell is going on here and uh so that was the title uh but yeah it it, i think that whenever you say the words not working or sucks or versus or the end of or beyond or any combination of things like that people have a certain visceral reaction
0: so what kind of reactions are you getting? Like, are you getting great content? Are you getting good comments? Are you getting, hey, what do you mean it doesn't work? Are you getting those snap well, reactions?
1: Yeah, I think that that's why, you know, I mean, I've certainly written some things where people are like, this is the most idiotic uh, thing ever. But yeah, this, it's the snap reactions that I'm getting. And, and one odd thing I'm getting about this post is, and in this way, I feel I got supremely lucky but in this post, I actually talk about pretty mundane things. At least I perceive them to be mundane, things about flow efficiency or multitasking or debt. And I get a lot of people who say to me something like, oh, my God, I ha- this is exactly what's been bothering me, but I haven't been able to put it into words. And you drew a couple pictures and you explained it. So I get a lot of those. I do get a lot of responses that say things like, uh, you know, don't blame the tool. We always get those. Don't blame the tool. Don't blame the practitioners. Um, then you get a lot of people who chiming in developers saying things like, you know, I never trusted this thing anyway. It sucks. Um, you know, can't we get back to doing work? So I, I would love to say that these are kind of unique reactions, but I think that they're just the traditional reactions you get when, you know, a couple hundred thousand people in our community see a title like that. So. Um, yeah, that, that's that's a little bit about, that's that's the type of feedback I've been getting. It's actually driven a bunch of direct one-to-one conversations with people. Um, uh, Ron Jeffries and I went back briefly, back and forth about it on Twitter, and I think it actually resonated with some older school, oh, that's a bad word, it resonated with people who've been doing this for a long time as a kind of some a nice, simple explanation of some of the problems they've been having, so... I don't know a variety of responses, Ryan, and and uh, you know I'm always I can't keep up with it. That's the problem at this point. So I'm, I'm trying to have a life as well.
0: Yeah, exactly. I some I, I read a lot of comments. I don't read all the comments, and you just you can't. <laughs> I bet
1: with a podcast. Yeah, you can't keep uh. up with a and and you also don't. And I'm sure you have this too. I'd I'd love to hear your take on it. You also step back sometimes and realize that you are creating a point of view and a community with a point of view. Right. Even if it's on un- And I'm sure you get this with the podcast, like you become a sum of the guests you've had and the viewpoints and, and the discussions that have happened. And it, it can be a little odd. How, how do you, how do you handle that?
0: Yeah. I, I definitely think, uh, that, that that point of view has been shaped by the guests. Right. So, right. Uh, I'm unapologetically a fan of scrum and I, and yeah. I believe in it and yeah. I actually think it's an excellent way to do work. Um, but not everyone agrees with that. And so yeah. that point of view, this is a very scrum pro podcast. Yeah. Um, no estimates. You know, I have a lot of no estimates advocates come on the show because none of the critics are willing to actually speak in an open forum. Right. Uh, I've invited all of them. And, yeah. uh, the only one that stepped up was, uh, Steve McConnell. And Steve McConnell did a great job. We had a wonderful conversation, uh, really appreciated his participation, but he's the only one that will do it. Um, but that's fine because he's also the most uh, prominent and uh, uh, the most popular one. So that's, that, that was a great show. But in the meantime, we've had 10 shows out of 80 that have been about a pro no estimate stance. And so suddenly I don't, uh, the idea is that I no longer believe in estimation or this show doesn't, which is the furthest thing from the truth. Right. Um, I believe strongly in, in lean thinking. You know, the, uh, the throughput or the cycle time drawings that you did uh, or where you, where you show the waste or the waiting time, I love that stuff. You know, cumulative flow diagrams drive my teams. You know, yeah. I, I believe in looking at cycle time and looking at bottlenecks and trying to apply uh, Reinerstein to wherever I can. I want to know what my flow efficiency is. And, and if we're at that 15% flow efficiency, which is pretty normal how can we fix that? What are we waiting for? How can I map our value streams to figure out what's valuable and what isn't and what's unplanned work and what's, you know, what work was in our backlog and what's coming in the back door and how is that affecting our our cumulative flow diagrams and our throughput and our lead time? And I'm all about that stuff. And if you want to be candid about it, that's estimation. Okay. It's a valuable estimation to me. Uh, Some of the other types aren't, but you know, so those kind of personas come in where, oh, he's uh, a scrum zealot, he's a no estimates mm-hmm. uh, hack, uh, that kind of stuff comes into play. But you know what? I wouldn't change anything. I And and honestly, John, the, the way that I approach, is, approach it is I try not to listen to it um, because it would change who I am and, and the type yep. of show we do. And I think people like the show. You know, you and yep. I have, uh, we've only met online a few times, but... We're able to get on here and have a fun conversation. And I think that's what yeah. people want. They want to learn from people like you and Woody Zool, you know, Jerry Weinberg, all the all the great people, uh the the top thinkers. Like you're the one of the top product thinkers in our industry, and it's great to have you on here to be able to have you just talk. And I yeah. and if we were worried about the personas we were creating or these these viewpoints, I think we, it would take away from what we were saying.
1: Yeah. I relate a lot actually with what you're saying and and it's funny, I mean, I can even draw it into this particular piece that you know I tend to I think that there are a lot of us in the community that have our, that have a very broad palette that that's the best way I could describe it you know that they we we are thinking and and kind of pattern matching across all these different interesting tools and mindsets and perspectives and things like that and I think that the tendency is, you know, overlay that, let's say, with the consulting community and, you know, everyone does has to do their work and they're finding value out there. I was having a conversation today with someone that, you know, once you're selling something, you do have to kind of think about packaging and, and you know, what, what is that thing that you're offering? And one thing that I've noticed is that especially, you know, those among us who, kind of weigh in and, and, and get involved in creating sort of content and trying to do the teaching part of it or the community side of it. And then also part, you know, work in the particular industry. I've noticed that it can be, that, that's one of those challenges where I think it can come across as certain people are extremely dogmatic about certain things when maybe that's their, their sort of professional persona, entering into the picture a little bit. Whereas if you're sitting, I always love this at conferences too. If you're sitting there with, with like a, you know, a, a couple of drinks or whatever coffee at the hotel bar, and then you really get to hear of all the things that are, are floating a person's boat at a particular point, it's completely overwhelming. It's one of the coolest experiences ever uh, to do that. I think one thing about this piece, I was, uh, I learn this every day, but but simple visualizations and simple drawings can be so powerful. And I always forget this. I'm like a big doodler. I'm always doodling in notebooks. And I, I do have a fair number of tweets where I put little pictures and stuff. But I think that one thing I was trying to get at with this post was that we often beat ourselves up about very, very, specific practices, whether it's in, you know, how the team is working, or we really beat ourselves up as a community. And if you take a step back, and if you think about the system that we have going in a particular company, if you think about the global system, you start to realize that there's these macro trends inside, you know, how a company is working. There's these macro things. And, and I actually did a post recently called, you know, How to Scale Without Imploding, and I kind of talked through that. That also actually got a fair amount of attention where I talked through the various phases of scaling and the challenges you had. I was amazed at the number of people who wrote me and said, oh, my God, I thought that it was only our company that was going through this. Oh, my God. You know, I thought that this was, you know, uh, negligence on the part of our CEO, but you helped me see that maybe there was another angle to it. And so I think what I was getting at with this wise and agile working piece was we beat ourselves up a lot and we often beat teams up a lot about their particular practices. But if you step back and if you think about the whole picture of a company and if you think about things like flow efficiency, if you think about things like the amount of, you know, static or noise in the system that that interrupts us, if you think about agile as A risk mitigation strategy, but if you think about it in terms of delivery risk and benefits risk, for example, it's really kind of comforting, (laughs) oddly comforting, (laughs) because I think that we we get so intense in the industry about beating up on individuals and continuous beating up on ourselves too. Just continuous improvement. We got to continue. We got to eke everything we can out of this team or what we're doing, and we don't take a step back. Uh, And I, I think that's a little bit what I was trying to get at with this.
0: Oh, I I agree with that. I I think that we we take it even further. So we got to continuously improve and Oh, we now now we need a way to measure it, and oh now right. we need a way to forecast it. And it's like, wait a minute, this is a, a team thing. What are we doing here? And you know, I what I find is um, as I've gotten older, I and John, we are kind of turning into the old guys. You know that, right? Oh crap! I know it, ha- but it was. It's a good thing that it's happening. It's much better than the alternative, but. Um, what's happening in my thinking at least is that I do have very strong opinions, and mm. but i've I've learned to hold them loosely. yeah and so i'm I have these very strict thoughts about scrum and estimation and and all of these things. but when data's brought forward i I change them i yep. I can change them with evidence and with proof and with you know logic and thought. and I think that's part of the difference too, right? I think it's we can have, as a community, we can have opinions, we can have these very passionate discussions, sometimes we beat ourselves up, sometimes we're a little rough on our our colleagues, but at the end of the day, it's for that improvement, and if we're willing to be reasonable and a little bit movable, like I'm willing to move a few inches on my views, I know you certainly are, I think that's where uh, the improvement comes from, so I've just, I've tried to really watch a lot of that stuff too, and you know, I don't know about you, but I've pull away from the holy wars a little bit i no longer care what safe if whether or not safe is or isn't agile um if it's as if that's as good as it gets at certain companies go for it because it's better than some oppressive unfair opaque waterfall type mode of working right yeah so i mean that's kind of where i'm drifting towards I, i still have these strong opinions but i'm just not i'm not gonna fall on the sword for for many of them
1: You know, it's funny, it's interesting you say that, is if you think about, you know, empirical process control, or if you think about, I think a vast majority of the whatever, older agilists or the people in the community that are doing this, most people believe in that kind of meta form of continuous, continuous improvement. So I've been thinking about this a lot lately, where it's kind of, we can talk about continuous improvement in very prescriptive terms and then we can talk about how do we improve upon how do we how we improve if that makes sense right. so you know and i think that that's what the those of us in the community really need to grapple with because we are the ones proposing the the, the tactical continuous improvement you know the medicine right? So like we're often in a position, I'd like to think that we often hopefully step back and let the team kind of think about their own medicine and stuff. But we're often in a position where we're tossing out ideas about how to fix things. But I think that we also have to engage very deeply in improving upon how we improve. And I think that that's something that, that people who are involved from a coaching standpoint and from other things um, have to take pretty seriously. I would love it if companies took that seriously as well, right? Um, one thing I've noticed is it's it's almost hard enough to get to a company to think beyond we're implementing my idea or your idea to, hey, let's continuously improve to, hey, let's reassess how we're improving. Is 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 that working, if that makes sense? So I don't know. I think it's a burden. It's a little bit of a burden that when you're deep in the community of coaching or consulting or helping that, that, and I think that we need to be kind to ourselves about it. It's tough work <laughs> to always be kind of having to operate on a couple levels uh, for, for doing this. I think that another thing that I've re- – I don't know about if you've gone here lately, but I've really been starting in to get, get – I read a great book about scaling. The, the name of the author is actually escaping me at the moment. But it's the book title is something like Scaling the Fundamental Laws About How All Things Scale, something like that. And it talks about scaling in in – sociotechnical systems in biological systems and all sorts of things. And it's really really it was an incredible book because it really forces you to step back from being in the weeds in a particular company that you're in or in a particular environment and look at the trends of what happens to companies. Companies die. Companies become zombies. Often despite our best Efforts, companies become zombies. You know, companies go back to some of the core decisions they made in the first two years of their existence, and they never fully escape those particular decisions. And, and nor can anyone, right? Um, it, there's a lot of th- so there's a lot of interesting macro trends when it comes to thinking about organizations and socio technical systems that I think that as practitioners, we'd love to believe that there is the low-hanging fruit. Oh, my God, flow efficiency is going to go up from 10% to 40%. Uh, the CEOs are going to become, you know, these Svengali leaders, hopefully not Svengali leaders. Actually, that's like the absolute worst term for a leader. You know, I don't know, like humble leaders or something. Um, and
0: How about just servant leaders?
1: Servant leaders, yeah. We're good. We're good. Svengali <laughs> is like the absolute opposite. I the problem is I know so many Svengali CEOs that I was I was grafting my knowledge of CEOs onto the problem, which was funny. But um, anyway, you get what I'm saying? That like we beat ourselves up. And what that's actually made me realize, and and I'll go on a little bit longer on this question because it's it's giving me an idea here, but uh, is that This is about us and our relationship with work. It's about us and our relationship to ourselves, our self-identity and our identity of our communities. And, And what I love about Agile for Humans, it is about the human side of this. Because when people talk about saving companies or, you know, oh my God, the low hanging fruit at that company and oh, micromanagement, and oh, middle management or oh, everything would be okay if managers fixed everything they did or we're really talking about creating humane places for us to be challenged and to explore our self-identity in our work. (laughs) And we're doing that as practitioners as well. So when you get into these extended debates about Scrum or save for anything or oh my God, you know, remove the managers or anything, we're often talking about our own relationships to work. We're we're talking about what makes us feel good, what makes us feel needed, and the environments where we feel trusted and wanted and have impact. So anyway, long story short, I think that if you think about those couple things I talked about, like the macro trends of business, Things are going to die, whether we help them or not in many cases. And then that extremely personal connection we have to work, I really hope that we, my personal trend lately has been don't beat ourselves up, focus on people, focus on the humans involved, do what you can for continuous improvement, move on when it doesn't make sense, and and take that more human angle. So it's been a progression, probably even since we last spoke. Um, that's where my head's at lately.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting view. We actually just recorded a show about the spine model, and I'm not sure if you've seen this before, but it's essentially starting at what needs are we trying to meet? Right. What do we value? What are the principles that we're going to use to maintain our values and meet needs? And then what are the practices and what are the tools? And what I like about what you're saying is uh, I can map this in my mind back to moving the conversation back up that spine you know cuz hmm. we spend a lot of time beating each other up over tools and practices right and improving right. tools and practices but when we really get into the individuals and interactions we start moving up to principles yep and that's an interesting conversation and then what do we value well we learn what we value through the principles we adhere to well then how we value you know then our values are influenced by the needs we're trying to meet of our own and of of our customers and of our teammates and so I, that's where to me i think our headspaces are are pretty similar right now and that I'm really interested in, you know, those first three levels of conversation and discovery and the practices and the tools are are becoming kind of secondary to me. Yeah. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, totally. And I think that this is the challenge as you get, and again, this is why I love it. This is about us as humans and in our own careers too, because as we develop, I, I mean, I'll tell an interesting story. I forget. I, I was, I'm participating in this book club that I put on. And the author of the book had a table in the book, a very sort of, a very interesting table for how to handle a certain problem. And I actually found myself saying, I'm not going to look at this table right now, but I know it exists. Like, I've put this, I've pattern matched this table against the problem sets that I have. And when I need this table again, I'm going to come back to it. In fact, I've kind of hit the limit on my, my, my RAM is full, right? So it's, it's really interesting. I think that the challenge that we have those practitioners is, you know, when you go into a room filled with, with 20 somethings or people who are earlier in their career, uh, it's not an age thing, just kind of earlier in terms of things, they really do gravitate towards the more concrete tools and practices, right? So I, I find myself juggling that, uh, constantly where, I've hit the limit. I know the tools that exist and know the worlds of the tools out there. I've hit the limit on the amount I can hold in my brain at once about that stuff. (laughs) Right. I can access them when I need them. I understand the traditions that are out there. But then, goodness, I know that when I go in and talk to someone who's less experienced with this, I need to slow the F down. (laughs) Yeah. Because, man, I'm going at 100 miles an hour. (laughs) It is so, it's, it's I don't know. I don't know if you've noticed that same thing. It's it's uh it's an interesting dynamic as you start to develop the whole tool the tool set, I think.
0: Yeah, it's it's a fire hose. And I've yeah. <laughs> I've actually I've screwed up those conversations. Um mm. I, I How remember so? very early on uh in a Scrum Master gig, I someone someone a project manager came to me and she was just very interested in, in Scrum. And uh, I just went a thousand miles a minute, man. I was like, "Oh, we got to do this and it's self-organization it's it just blasted her with ten years of scrum theory in like ten minutes and it uh turned that person off it was just yep. i I don't understand this I'm never gonna understand all this uh, so I'm just gonna go away and I'm gonna and that person turned um ultimately someone uh, we're in a, in a mentoring relationship now where have a lot of great conversations, uh, talk to each other about improvement. But at that time, I mean, I, I almost turned away one of the most talented agilists I know today. Huh. And, uh, Fascinating. It was crazy. But eventually I just went back and said, what need are we trying to fill here? And she finally was able to just talk to me. And what I, what I learned in that moment was um, ask more questions, uh, talk less, listen more, and uh, you'll probably do well. And so by just by asking what's wrong, what need are we trying to fill here? She was miserable telling people what to do as a project manager. She hated having to crack the whip and have the carrot and the stick mentality. And and so we were just able to talk about servant leadership. So we had a nice 30-minute conversation about that. And then every couple days, we'd have lunch and talk about one next topic. You know, and it it turned into a a conversation. Here's the thing. I think a lot of the time when we're talking to someone, it's not a long-term investment. You know, what we're doing is we're we're having a 10-minute talk. We're trying to move on to the next thing. And uh, when we treat people and interactions like that, uh, you don't get great results. Uh, when I've taken a longer-term view, like you and I, I hope we'll talk for the next 20 years. You know, I hope people listening to this podcast will will become the next wave of Agilis, and they'll come on here, or my show will become so dated that I've got to go on their show and beg them to, to tell me what the cool new thing is. <laughs> you know, I hope all that stuff happens. Uh, but it's a long-term view. Like there's an investment in a relationship. There's an investment. I, you know, this is an ongoing discussion and I, and I think far too often, I know I'm guilty of this. There are times where I'm not making that long-term investment and I'm really messing up that conversation.
1: Mm. Yeah, this happens a lot with the the writing and, you know, I kind of float between a bunch of different communities. I, I mean, I think there might be like six of them or eight of them. And it's very interesting to me because I think that, I would say, okay, I'm going to totally just guess. I'm going to say that 60% or 80% of the dialogue on Twitter, in these different forums, are much more about posturing our own self-identity and core sort of beliefs and our defense mechanisms and our, uh, the adrenaline that comes with creating social capital, you know, the, the endorphins, I would say that the bulk of the conversation is about that. It's almost an automatic level of response. And the, the type of deep understanding that's required. I I really like what what you said about the sort of long-term view of these things. You know, we talk a lot about about business being sped up and all these particular things, but our own bodies are being sped up. (laughs) Cognitively, we're being sped up. You know, the ability to scan, you know, 300 notifications in Twitter and sort of say, oh my God, I got to respond to that and not that. And what's this? And what's that? And what's this person complaining about? and What am I complaining about? (laughs) Right? So... You know, it's kind of fascinating when you do think about it from that level. But back to what you're saying, the ability to take the longer-term view, to slow down, and to have meaningful interactions that evolve, that are not like stateless interactions, which which is kind of fascinating. The whole getting things done, you know, get things out of your inbox sort of idea is about it being stateless. It's done. It means it's actually out of your mind, right? So when you, when someone or one or two posts you know the the snarky reply back on twitter in some way that's the stateless response you've tried to come to a conclusion there that that's actually you know co- you know whatever psychologically pleasing to you that you're done with and gets it out of your inbox right <laughs> so it's just kind of fascinating to me how that all relates to building communities of practice and building sort of like lasting uh bodies of work and lasting things that people can draw from. I don't know. I find it fascinating. And, and man, if we could get everyone to meditate for 30 minutes in all of product development, that would improve our situation. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you want to talk about low hanging fruit,
0: <laughs> just right? slow down a minute. Yeah.
1: Just slow down. And you know what? It's funny. Cause I think that that's a, when I'm scanning what people are putting out there these days, that is one of the big sort of big, Older rock principles that I see emerging from people is like, how do we slow down a little bit? We talk about faster, 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 agile, 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 you know, tighten everything up. But I wrote a post that actually was meaningful, very meaningful to me, called Promises in Progress, PIP. And it was all about what, what is the actual sum total of the promises that an organization or an individual or a team has in progress? And what I realized when I put that post together was that in the average organism, and, and I've done this exercise with a couple teams where we dig into what the PIP is instead of the work in progress. And I am not joking that the work is like 30%. The, the promises in progress are the 70%. I'll get back to you on that. Oh, we should think about that. Oh, that's a good idea oh, maybe we, should, maybe we should try to always do X while we're doing the work. Maybe we should try to um, check in with ourselves or even weirder ones like cultural promises, customers first. That's a promise. That's a promise the organization is trying to make. And so as I started to think about the PIP stuff, and I will relate this to moving faster, is that, man, we're hitting we're hitting our limits of sort of cognitive processing, the human cognitive processing unit, right? Mm-hmm. So it's the pip that drags us down, not necessarily the work. And that started to mean a lot with me in figuring out how to try to slow down and how to, how to meditate and how to think deeply about all the promises I'm throwing off all the time. Like you organized this awesome day of recording uh, for Agile for Humans and that probably involved a ton of promises. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, you, you you were making a promise to yourself, you know, like th- these are, it's deep.
0: Yeah. It, it's, it's a full day and it's getting people, you're right. There's a lot of promises in process here.
1: Yeah. So but, um, I don't know. Anyway, back to the idea of slowing down. I think that, I see that mentioned a lot these days, and I think that that's a trend that I'm seeing emerging is everyone's talking about fast, 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 agile's faster, move faster, do whatever faster. And I think that that's missing out on the real sense of if agility is about the ability to change direction and to learn, and we're being cognitively taxed to the max in our organizations, then the bottleneck is ourselves our ability to process learning and in an environment where our processing units are overwhelmed, of course we're just going to focus on shipping fast because that's the only thing that we can control in that environment. So I don't know, I'm going in on this, but I've been thinking a lot about promises and process.
0: Yeah. I actually think promises and process have, uh, I think they've been detrimental to me lately. I, um, (laughs) So I, I sometimes, I I will sometimes struggle with saying no. Mm. And, uh, when you make too many of those promises, you end up missing commitments and then people are definitely upset. And I, I definitely have felt the effects of promises in process. And I, that really resonates. That's, um, and it's because it's hard to visualize, right? Yeah. So a team can, can works with their product owner and there's a, there's a product backlog, there's a sprint backlog, there's a sprint goal all of that's up on the wall all of that's very visible um, but the promises that you make in the hallway or yeah. or the implied promises by a question or a statement and all the assumptions surrounding them stay very very hidden and not transparent and uh, yeah they come back uh, rearing their ugly head in full full force sometimes i that's interesting
1: yeah i've been going deep on it and thinking about what it what it means and and this idea of because really at the end of the day, and, and I, I, this is the sort of Zen part of whatever Kanban method or whatever you want to say, the idea of work in progress, let's, let's get 50,000 feet above. I don't care whether it's a sprint on, on, a, on a sort of high, high level, a sprint or a work in progress constraint or an end on chord or any number of things. It's a forcing function. And it's a forcing function to catalyze continuous improvement of some kind or, or reflection. Yeah, the, the interesting thing to, about promises in, in, in process for me is that if you go up on the 40,000 or 50,000 foot level about the stuff we do with Scrum or Kanban or work in progress constraints or sprints or and on chords or whatever, a lot of these things basically are forcing functions, right? So they're a forcing function that is supposed to be a catalyst for continuous improvement right. of some kind. And I think that gets mangled in Scrum, and I think it gets mangled in Kanban, and I don't care where it is, it gets mangled. So when everyone talks about abuse, it gets abused everywhere, right? The forcing function becomes something different. You're not thinking about the purpose of this constraint that you're creating. The interesting thing about promises in progress or process is that, um, again, it's that visualization thing, but we haven't figured out how to have effective forcing functions for our promises, And when you make forcing functions for your promises, they feel really freaking awkward. Yep. You know, it's about saying to someone, it's about saying to the, I worked with a CEO who would say everything's a great idea. You know what I didn't, he didn't realize, he didn't realize every time he said that, that that was a promise. Because if you come up with an idea and your CEO says, that's a great idea, that's a kind of tacit encouragement on that particular thing. And you've actually got a little mission going that you're going to create that thing. Or you're going to move that thing forward. Or if someone says, you know, we'll do better next time. That's a promise. So what it it occurred to me is that the challenges, that the the forcing functions around our promises are a lot tougher, a lot more human, a lot more personal. They require saying to someone like, hey, I'm going to forget you said that to me. (laughs) You know, like, that's a pretty awkward thing to say to someone. Or I'm at my limit. And that's the one that I'm struggling the most with, I don't know about you, is that everything in this community about in the the life hacking community or the productivity community is how to handle more. And if we take a lean approach to our own cognitive processing thinking, it's like, no. And the ability to go into a point where you might have all the answers as a coach or practitioner and say, I cannot say another word. Because I will be creating more promises for the team. I will be creating more promises for myself. That's about self-discipline and, and team discipline. So, I don't know, I've said a lot, but I think forcing functions for work mean one thing. Forcing functions for promises and process mean another thing. They require different skills, and they require a lot of uh, self-awareness, I think.
0: Well, and they're deeply personal. And right. so it requires a lot of psychological safety. Uh, work and process Things can carry over to the next sprint. Uh, the team doesn't necessarily get chastised, and they—I yeah. mean—they really shouldn't happen. But you can meet your sprint goal and not get everything done that you intended to get done, and so you can yep. still have success. You break one promise—one promise out of a hundred during a sprint or a period of time—and it's a totally different feeling. Yep. I mean, it is a totally different beast, and you know these these mechanisms that you're talking about. I mean they're far more severe. I mean yeah. it's one thing to be told, well, our scope got a little out of hand. Um we re- we reined it in, we preserved the sprint goal, but there's some work that we need to do next sprint to to get that feature back on the on the backlog. Great. There's another thing yeah. to say, you broke this promise to me. And that Yeah, and you
1: think it's it's huge because if you look at this idea of normalization of deviance or drift into failure, or any of these ideas, or just just basic organizational entropy. I mean, these are some different ideas. One of the central—it's easy to talk about a system. Oh, well, we used to check this system three—you know—once every three thousand miles, it works. And now we check it nine thousand miles. Then we checked it fifteen thousand miles, and you know, little did we know that uh, you know a black swan event was going to come out and the plane was going to crash. Right. I mean, that is that is a drift into failure. That's a normalization of deviance. That's some kind of concept like that. In my, you know, this is a fascinating one for me. In my article about, you know, scaling and imploding, what I really realized is when everything's in front of you and when stuff works, you see it doesn't, you know, it works. When it doesn't, you see it doesn't work. You, when it takes a long time to onboard an employee, everyone knows that it's all very in your face. It's all very transparent. The number one thing that you get with scaling, the reason why you get the drift into failure, is all those feedback mechanisms start to encounter little hiccups. Yep. And I, I, you know, the, the someone said it the other way. It's like it's better to make a ton of small promises than to make a one big occasional promise and then drop the ball on things. So this is actually kind of funny because it goes straight to Scrum. It goes straight to iter- any type of iterative type development. And it also comes to the organizational's need sometimes to create fake commitment points and fake promises, right, to build that trust. So this is an interesting dynamic, I think, where it's, can we create um, humane and sort of meaningful touch points and sort of forcing functions for trust so that we can rebuild our communities if things go off track? Or are we creating trust proxies? are we creating promise proxies? And I think that, uh, you know, Tim, Andrew goes into this a lot about, you know, what are we hiring the process to do? But if what we're hiring the process to do is to somehow soft land a crash landing of trust or promise keeping, man, that's gonna get you into trouble. You know, you're you're never gonna get anywhere with that process uh, to to do that. So I don't know, I've said a lot, but it, it is a deep, deep topic that, that I've been getting into a lot lately personally and, and with organizations. But a lot of it, too, I'll give you a great example. You join a company and the company is known as being kind of innovative with their approaches and as being maybe someplace that's open to communicating when things aren't working. That's a promise that you've engaged in with the company. Maybe that was the sell when you joined the company. Maybe that's what the recruiter told you. Maybe that's what the CEO says at every single meeting. When that, when we have an insane ability to sense lack of coherence in our work, I think humans are coherent sensors. And so what I notice is that that central promise broken can destroy a company. The central promise of this is a great place to work in, we believe in giving you autonomy and, and trusting people to get the work done. If you break that promise You've lost something extremely important for that company, um, so it's a pretty deep concept. I, I mean, you could you can use promises for anything, but um, I don't know for you how would you how would you con- contrast commitments with promises? That's an interesting one.
0: Commitment is something that I look at a little differently than other people. Um, I see a, a commitment not being to an outcome. Yeah, I see a yeah, commitment yeah, yeah. being to to values. I think see, see a commitment being to. Whether it's a framework or to teammates, I see a commitment yeah. being this intrinsic type thing. I see yeah. a promise being a a promise is within an expected or intended outcome. And I and I kind of make yeah. I make the differentiation that way.
1: It's interesting, yeah. And we could go. Uh, I I'm probably a little bit on the. I, yeah, I'm. That's an interesting one because I could see how promises could be. We promised uphold this value right? So that gets a little meta, right? Right, you know, right? It's like, that's like a commitment. And you know, there, I think the Venn diagram between commitments and promises are interesting. I think that the upshot for the promises thing, and I think this happens a lot with coaching. I see a lot of coaching groups get together and put a lot of change in progress. So I would have promise in progress, work in progress and change in progress. And they are all very serious about their careers. They want the best for their teams. And they make a lot of commitments. They make a lot of promises to each other about things that they hope to do with their work, or promises to themselves. And I think that's the thing: commitments and promises can be made to yourself. And they just swamp the org. You know, they they swamp the org with change, Um, and they do it at a rate that can't really be processed by the people. So, yeah, it's 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 an interesting one. But the main realization, the big picture realization, is that. What we call work is just a small amount of what's taxing our cognitive load. It's that developer who says, but you told us we'd be able to iterate on that. Or it's that person who says, um, you, we, made, we made a, I guess, commitment. Yeah, we, we made a promise or a commitment to, to really respect quality here. And I, I don't think we're keeping that promise to our customers or other people. I'd say much more than work, that weighs on us. And I think it's important to talk about.
0: I I think it's incredibly important. One that comes immediately to mind is, you know, you promised that swag estimate that you coerced us into giving wouldn't be used or held against us.
1: Oh, that's a great
0: point. And I've seen this over and over and over where the team gives a range and they put a disclaimer and they put the watermark across it saying, this is nonsense. Don't make decisions based off of this. Right. right, right. And then suddenly that's their new, that's the date. Yeah. And you're right. People, there's a continuity problem there. That one's pretty obvious, but it's even in the, the small comments made by the CEO that you mentioned or the, yep. just the, the way things play out. I, I agree. There are, I think we're very good at, at seeing the continuity issues and uh we're kind of detectors that way and man is it just it's demoralizing i think back to the conversation we had about how companies can just kind of entropy kicks in and they die i think that's kind of that first step if if you're not really watching those promises and process and the effects of that lack of continuity uh, when it comes to promises uh not being kept i i think that's the 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 path down the road of of some of those problems
1: you could also think about it as zombies, and this is the other thing I yeah. think that is – it's, it's it, this is the little bit of the elephant in the room and all this. Look, you can have a successful company where most of the people in the company are pretty happy to work there; they're not really growing. It, it might even be a political place to work at and and uncomfortable, but it's a little bit of like the Walking Dead. You know, it's it's not. I think that the rate of of amount of time companies stay on the Fortune fifty is five hundred is has dropped by a lot. Like I think this book about scaling that I was reading, it might be like almost all companies die in five or seven years, meaning they are either acquired, um, you know, absorbed into other companies or other these particular things. So I think the little bit of the elephant in the room is we we do have options when we create our sociotechnical systems and, and our, our companies, whether to how what promises that we make, you know, to, to each other. And I think that that's, um, I say it's the elephant in the room because I think that people would like to say that unless you do X, Y, and Z, your company's going to suck and it's not going to make any money. But you could argue that a company that lasts for 20 years, that doesn't necessarily choose to innovate wildly. I, I say this a lot with scrum and safe and other things like that. Let's say you're a pretty successful company. And someone says, oh, you have to turn everything upside down or otherwise your company is not going to exist. And you work at that company or you're a manager at that company and you might say to yourself, you know what, maybe you're right, but there's not really an imperative. I don't need to participate in this mass agitation of this company to try to change it into something else. You know. And as much as I know the community loves to talk about saving companies, I think we need to talk about growing people. And I'm that guy now. I used to kind of laugh at people who would say that because I'd be like, no, you can save the company. Like, we have to think about business. We have to think about why we're doing this, which is to, you know, I I was very product centric. So I would be like, it's all about the customers, you know, but now I'm doing anything too, man. If you're not, if you're not caring for the people in the system and if you're just trying to save the company or do anything at all to, to help the customers, you're kind of missing some of the opportunity, but that, that's just my bias. I'm pretty biased on that
0: now. <laughs> no, I I think I think you're right. I think that's a great place for us to end because we need to keep our promise to the listener to not go past an hour.
1: Yep. Yeah, this so is great. I, I t- really appreciate talking with you.
0: I I love it too, John. I I I hope we can find a way to do this even more often because this this hour flew by, and I feel like we could probably do three more hours just on this topic.
1: So, yeah, it's a may, bit. May, uh, maybe we'll do a follow up, bring, bring some other folks in. I'd love to hear some other uh, perspectives on, on promises and companies dying and The Walking Dead and all that kind of stuff. It would be fun.
0: Yeah, I think we'll, we'll try to make that happen in the near future because I think this is a topic, this is in the back of the minds of many people. Um, yep. I think we all, it's something you sense, but maybe you can't articulate. I have a feeling this will, um, this will set some people some thought in motion. So. I appreciate you doing this. This is the part of the show, John. You're a veteran. You know what's about to happen. What do you have to promote? What do you have going on? How can people continue the conversation with you? Uh, Be sure to plug your Medium site, which we will uh, get in the show notes. And uh, just anything else you want to get in front of the listeners.
1: Oh, same old. uh, Medium's my place. It's easy. That's where I write. Twitter is where I hang out because it's easy. And... But yeah, I'd like to actually encourage some people to, to uh, send me doodles and drawings. I'm super into the sort of the mind maps that people are creating these days and other ways of visualizing our promises, our work, strategy and missions and stuff that that's been a, a kind of pet interest of mine lately. So, you know, send along that stuff, uh, you know, over Twitter or, you know, r- you know, put at John Cuttlefish in Twitter, a nice drawing. I'm into that stuff lately
0: very cool so we'll get uh all of your your contact info on that in the show notes uh the uh, the blog site and all of that john just want to thank you again for doing this uh, these conversations go by way too fast so
1: yeah. cool all right uh, it's great chatting
0: yep and as for for me your host ryan ripley uh twitter is at ryan ripley the website ryanripley.com hopefully that's where you're hearing this podcast if not you're probably on itunes if you are on itunes please take a minute give us a nice review five stars is always appreciated, but please be honest. Uh, if you'd like to even take the next step further in supporting the show, and of course sharing it is the best way to support it, but if you'd like to join the the Patreon effort, we do have a link on the website now where, where you can become a contributor through Patreon. Uh, this is an experiment we're trying out to see after, you know, after months of people asking how can they contribute, how can they help, finally decided to do this. So we'll see where this goes, but... Uh, you know, As always, everybody, you're sharing the show. The download numbers are just skyrocketing. Uh, we're, we're gaining new listeners month over month, and it's because you, the listener, are sharing uh, the show. You're sharing the value you get out of it. I just can't thank you enough. So, And it, it allows me to reach out to great people like John and make it worth their while uh, to have these conversations. And it's just uh, your support leads to more conversations like this. So thank you, everybody, out there for listening. Thank you for sharing. And I hope you all have a great evening. Thanks for listening to Agile for Humans. Let's keep the conversation going. Drop us a question on Twitter at Agile for Humans or visit agileforhumans.com.